Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Hi, Luminous Writers. This is a replay of a conversation I had with the former managing editor at Atticus Review, Dorothy Bendel. I'm reissuing this interview as a companion to a piece that was just posted on my website, written by Lucy Wilde, a writer in my course and membership community, about publishing with Atticus in a series of articles called How I Published With dot, 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 in this case with Atticus. As Lucy, my student, writes, there are two main reasons I wanted to see my work in Atticus Review, the quality of the writing and the fact that they are interested in publishing hybrid, unconventional work that pushes boundaries. You can find that article up on rachelthompson.co slash articles, and I'll remind you of that link at the end of this episode. There is also a lot of love and a lot of helpful instruction about how to write, publish, and shine in this upcoming conversation with Atticus Review former managing editor Dorothy Vendell. Atticus Review publishes writing that is unashamed, unadorned, and unafraid, and is a daily online journal that publishes fiction, poems, creative nonfiction, as well as graphic art, mixed media, music, essays, and on occasion, blog posts, and interviews. So welcome to the podcast, Dorothy Bendel. Thank you for having me. That's my pleasure. I want to dive right into what types of stuff Atticus Review publishes. And you say on your website that it's unashamed, unadorned, and unafraid. And you want contributors to dig deep into wounds, to uncover words that touch the heart and the heartache, not to wallow, but to transcend despair through art and arrive at something hopeful. And I just think that's such a lovely description about what I love about writing too, the hope that transcends despair. Can you tell me what writing has been giving you hope these days? Yeah, um, I think one of our primary concerns with what we publish on Atticus is work that is honest and erases shame. I think that's a big thing for us. So some of the work that I've been reading recently that I think taps into that and starts discussing important issues that we don't really talk about enough in a very candid way um, is one is No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder that just came out. And I just saw her here in Washington, D.C. at Politics and Prose. And that goes into domestic violence and uh, murder. And uh, I'm still reading it. It's such a well-rounded book. And she's just such a fearless writer. Um, I think it's it's so important what she's doing. Uh, and on the same note, I just finished uh, a memoir that's forthcoming next month, I believe, called What a Body Remembers. It's a memoir of sexual assault by Karen Stefano. And what I loved about that memoir is, you know, it goes so far beyond just recounting the events, but really digs into the aftermath of assault. And so these issues, uh, especially seeing these great memoirs and nonfiction books by female writers gives me a lot of hope about where writing is going. And I hope that the work that we publish on Atticus furthers those conversations. 
Thanks for sharing that. I'll, I'll post all the links to those pieces, the, that essay and, and the book in the show notes for this episode too. What do you think are some of, so, you know, speaking of these kind of conversations around violence and sexual assault too, what are some of the essential conversations that you've sparked through Atticus Review? Well, um, we get a lot of great feedback from our audience. Um, one of the things that we try really hard to do is, you know, not just post work and, and that be kind of the end of it. We really try to be active on social media. We really try to support our writers, anybody who's ever published anything on Atticus. We continue to support them throughout their careers as much as we possibly can. Um, and we've had people write to us about, um, pieces that have just basically helped them deal with things that might've happened in their lives that they had never spoken about before or never written about before, or never thought about writing about these events in, in a different way. And that's another thing that I love about Atticus is that we do welcome experimental work and I think sometimes you see magazines that say they do welcome it, but when you look through the stuff that they publish, maybe they don't really feature as much risk-taking work or work that experiments with forum. And I think if you look through our archives, you can see that we do do that. So it's, again, going back to um, you know reducing shame and kind of speaking in an authentic voice um, that we have a lot of people really respond to. Yeah, there's something so gratifying in a particular way about being seen in that way through literature. It's great to hear that you support your writers like that, that you continue to to kind of keep the conversation going after the piece has been published even. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another feature that we have on the site that I don't, I haven't seen in a lot of other places is just on our regular submission form, our uh, submittable forms, uh, we have a place for authors Anybody who's ever published anything, um, any kind of work on the site can share news with us, anything that they've published recently, any upcoming readings they have, and any kind of news that they want to share with our audience and, and celebrate. We do a post specifically for that every month. And that in turn, you know, keeps conversations going. So I'm really proud of that. Oh, and you do that right through Submittable? Like you have a submission for just updates from writers. Is that right? We do. It's just, if you look on our submittal page, it's uh, author news and all you have to do is share your news. And I go through those every month and, and post news. Um, I, I wish that I could keep up with everybody's publications, um, on a daily or weekly basis, but because we do publish daily, um, or Monday through Friday, we work with so many writers. It's really difficult to keep track and, and we try to share on social media as much as we can. Um, so this is kind of our solution to helping support writers in, in a way that's manageable for us. Well, that's such a great idea. I'm going to pass that along to the people at room too. <laughs> can you tell me about what are some of the qualities of work you get in submissions that don't fit your platform? And I ask because... Well, I, I like to know, gen, I usually ask this question, but I also saw on your website that you say we are a platform, but not a pulpit, and that moralizing is best kept to Sunday school, judgment is best kept in court. So can you talk a little bit about submissions that I guess don't fit and why? 
Okay, sure. Yeah. I think especially in nonfiction, we get work that just sounds like somebody sounding off, I guess. Um, there, you know, uh, we're looking for creative nonfiction work, um, work that um, has an artfulness to it. And sometimes I, I understand how, especially with a lot of what's going on in the world today, you know, we just kind of want to scream sometimes and it just comes through our writing. But I think sometimes that kind of reading can come off as you know, finger wagging. So that is, is not the kind of thing we're looking for. And we also sometimes oddly get very academic sounding work. And that, I mean, if, if, if you look at our work at all, it just, it doesn't fit the kind of work that we're publishing. But I find that more frequently in the nonfiction categories as opposed to some of the others. For both the rents and the academic stuff? Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. I know you write fiction, CNF, poetry, and TV reviews. I was very excited to see that. <laughs> and I, I love in particular your investigation of the structural ambiguity in Twin Peaks. It's up on Electric Literature, and I'll link to that too. But can you tell me why do you write in all these different genres? And I guess, what do you love about each genre? Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, sometimes I think about um, the different genres I, I write in, and I wonder if it's just um, lack of focus, but... <laughs> Uh, I actually, I'm writing a lot more in CNF recently, but sometimes I feel like not to sound a little woo woo, but sometimes work just kind of comes to me and it's in, in a specific form, like uh, each piece I, or something I feel compelled to write has its own voice. And sometimes that voice requires a different vessel for telling it. And one of the, I think one of the reasons too, why I gravitate towards a lot of experimental type of CNF work is because of the piece that you mentioned, Twin Peaks. I'm a big fan of David Lynch because of the way he works around what he calls dream logic and how things come sort of fragmented and how his storytelling tends to be very nonlinear. And for me, that's just the way my memory works. And so that speaks to me. Um, so fiction to me, uh, I feel like it's something that I can tap into sort of the imaginary part of that. And, and poetry for me is really deeply rooted in the musicality and language of it. And then the CNF is something that I think I try to push the boundaries of and bring in those other elements of other genres. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I, I think it's just because I think about narrative maybe a little differently um, than a lot of traditional forms. So like one of the books that I'm reading right now is Meander Spiral Explode by Jane Allison from Catapult. And Oh, I'm reading that book right now too. Oh, it's you amazing. are. Yeah. I know so many people who are reading that book right now and it's fabulous. And, um, I love her enthusiasm, uh, for reading. And I just, I, I love the way she talks about narrative and it's just a different way of looking at narrative. And that really speaks to me. Um, so really just, I feel like the pieces kind of that I am working on demand their own form in a way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And 
I liked about that book too. It just questions why does narrative have to be in this one particular way that was set out by Aristotle way back when. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hitting pause on my discussion about form with Dorothy Bendel, the former managing editor at Atticus Review, to introduce the sponsor for this episode, who I'm so grateful to. The sponsor is The Fiddlehead, Canada's longest continuously published literary magazine based in Fredericton, New Brunswick, on unceded Wollastogwig territory. You can subscribe to them. They publish four times per year and run literary contests in fiction, poetry, and creative nonfiction. Forthcoming for winter 2022 is a special issue on BIPOC solidarities curated by their BIPOC editors. To pre-order this issue, you can read their submission guidelines to and enter their contest or to sign up for The Frond, the best named quarterly newsletter I've ever heard of, at thefiddlehead.ca. And now back to more exciting discussion about form and shape in writing with Dorothy Bindel. I want to ask you more specifically about a a poem of yours I just read called Murmuration upon American Literary Review. And just visually, it strikes me, and I think this is helpful too for people who want to submit to Atticus Review to think about how a piece looks on the page and it just has real beautiful movement to it. It's sort of like it's waving back and forth, even though, it, you know, obviously it's just text on a screen. It's not moving, but it feels like it. So I'm wondering how, how do you feel out the way to set up a piece visually on a page when you're writing it? And is there something that comes first to you, the text or the, or the placement? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, it usually is it's sort of a marriage of form and, and content, but I, I would say most of the time, I have an idea for something that I want to write about kind of percolating and just waiting there for me to actually get on the page. And I'm not great about writing every day. And sometimes I need that extra push. And I also find myself being, you know, inspired by different forms, just seeing the shape of a piece or the vessel of a piece and say like a hermit crab essay idea will spark a memory or tap into something that I could have written about before, maybe in a different way. And and sometimes you think you've written about something, especially in nonfiction, and you think you're done writing about it. And then for me, I'll kind of stumble upon another form. And all of a sudden I think, oh, actually this is tapping into some other element of this thing that I never thought about before and it's shedding a completely new light on it. So when I wrote Murmuration, I was, <laughs> I don't know how I ended up in a YouTube hole looking at videos of starling murmurations. And I was so struck by how beautiful um, their forms were as they moved. And I had been thinking about writing something about moving and um, my experiences being homeless when I was younger. And I had written about those things before, but just not in the same way. So it's, it's really interesting too. I love, one of the things I loved about publishing that piece is the different responses I get from people because some people call it an essay, some people call it a poem. Um, and I think that they're kind of all right in a way. 
it's, it's something different for everyone. Mm. I'm a fan of that intersection between the, the lyric essay and, and poetry. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest for emerging writers who want to develop this hybrid, unconventional work that you publish, but are still sort of just trying to find their footing with writing? Like, is there anyone in particular that you read? We, we mentioned that book and I'll, I will link to that book as well. But is there anyone that you read and, and any epiphanies that you had early on about your writing? Well, I guess my best advice is probably maybe boring advice to some, uh, and that's just reading widely. Um, I did, you know, sort of grow up on reading the classics and, you know, things that are considered canon. And I think that's, you know, great for a foundation, but we, you know, I hope writers are reading more modern writers. Um, one, essay in particular that I think really kind of blew things open for me as far as experimenting with form is Jill Talbot's essay, The Professor of Longing. Um, And her work is incredible. Also, Randon Noble has a new collection of essays out called Be With Me Always. Uh, And she does a lot of experimenting with form, some of her work was featured on Brevity, which is another great website for looking into that kind of work. So I think for a long time, I was, I don't know if I had a specific epiphany aside from, you know, reading pieces like Jill Talbot's essay, but sort of trying to write in more traditional forms because, you know, that's the kind of stuff we read through high school and sometimes college. And feeling that I wanted to do something more and that sometimes those traditional forms didn't do justice to what I was trying to say. It's kind of like learning the mold so you can break it. Uh, that's sort of how my, my process happened. Uh, but there's so many great writers um, really pushing the boundaries now. And so reading lit mags is, is one of the best ways to see new up-and-coming writers that are doing really exciting things with form. Oh, yes. I totally agree. (laughs) And I guess for people who want to submit to Atticus Review, it makes sense to read Atticus Review, too, and sort of see what kind of rules are being broken there and what rules did you learn that maybe you could think about breaking yourself. Mm -hmm. When it comes to unconventional work, like how do you approach it editorially when it's submitted to you? Do you have a really light hand with that or, or do you get into the muck with writers? Yeah, I think it, it it differs slightly with each editor. We have an amazing editorial staff and, you know, a lot, our editors have, you know, a great deal of autonomy, um, but then they also have readers underneath them who they collaborate with. And I think most of my experience with editing one-on-one with pieces in with Atticus has been nonfiction work because I actually joined Atticus initially as nonfiction editor before moving on to managing editor. And I think that it's really difficult to do heavy edits for pieces that are very unconventional because, you know, I, I personally, as an editor, don't want to suck the life out of a piece. And I think with forms that are really pushing the boundaries it can be difficult to change things without changing the entire piece itself. And then it can just, you know, be really difficult to move on from there. So I would say, especially with pieces that push boundaries um, and experiment with form, it's really important to that the piece come to us, 
nearly finished. Um, we're definitely willing to work with, with writers, you know, if we feel that there are changes that maybe would improve the piece without, you know, essentially changing too much of it. And if we do think that a piece maybe just needs too much, you know, work, then, then we can give it without changing it fundamentally. Then we'll definitely, we let our writers know, we want people to know that when we don't take a piece, but we encourage them to resubmit that we really, really mean it. And I think most editors do really, really mean it. I think I understand how it is to be on the other side as a writer and to get a rejection with an encouraging note to send again. And sometimes we tend to focus on just the rejection itself when actually, yes, editors do want to see your work again and you know, we always, we actually include that in our rejection forms or our, our, our responses is that, you know, we are writers too, and we understand what this is like. Um, and so everything we're saying to you, we, we really mean it's coming from the heart. I love seeing that kind of empathy for writers and it's true. I've talked to so many editors through this podcast and they all say, we don't say this lightly. We really mean it. We want to see more of your work. Absolutely. So what is one more thing? I mean, you've told us a lot of great things about Atticus Review, but what's one thing that writers should definitely know, but based on what you see in submissions likely do not about submitting to Atticus Review? Well, I hope that they know that we really handle their submissions with great care. We, we read every word we're being thoughtful about it. There's, you know, typically multiple eyes looking at what you've submitted. There's, you know, likely conversations going on behind the scenes about your piece. We just want you to know that we do, we respect the work that you're sending us. And we so deeply appreciate that you're even putting yourself out there and that you're sharing this work with us you know, we take our jobs very seriously. Um, and we also try to be timely with our responses. It can differ, of course, from category to category. Um, for example, we get far more fiction than uh, nonfiction, which I think is pretty common across the board for lit mags. Um, but we all, you know, we try to respond to you in a timely manner because we understand how difficult difficult it is to wait without hearing a response. We understand that you're submitting to other places and we want to respect your time as much as the material that you're sending us. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing your lit mag love with us today, Dorothy. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. So that was my conversation with Dorothy Bendel, managing editor at Atticus Review. One of the things she said is that she's been reading works and focusing on works that discuss important issues, that at Atticus, the most important work that they're doing is to erase shame. So giving a space for people to tell stories, maybe stories that they've never told before. And she also mentioned that they are truly looking for writing that is experimental, that sometimes, and I've seen this too, where you see a lip mag says that they're looking for something experimental, but you're not seeing a lot in the pages. And she said, you check out Atticus Review, you're definitely going to see a lot of risk-taking experiments with form. Looking at the type of work that they enjoy publishing with Atticus, 
and some of the pitfalls maybe people fall into when they're submitting. They're definitely not looking for academics, creative nonfiction, or people who just want to rant or sound off on an issue. It's definitely work that is more reflective, uh, deeper, more lyrical take, I think, on the writing. And one of the things that Dorothy said that I thought was really useful was to encourage writers to read more modern writers, and particularly to read lit mags to see many up-and-coming writers and the different types of experiments with form that are happening. There are a lot of writers experimenting and pushing form, and Atticus is a place that publishes writing that does that, so it it makes sense to read that kind of writing. Another thing she said is that they really, really mean it when they say to resubmit. And I feel like this is like a daily, or certainly each episode where I'm repeating this because editors hear feedback that people don't believe that, but in fact, it's really quite true when they say that. So if you get a note like that, do resubmit. And publishing with them seems to have a lot of great benefits. One is that they really support their writers and want to share the news of anything that's going on in your writing life, and in fact, have built a form for you to be able to go back and share that once you've published with them. And editorial-wise, they're not going to really do deep edits on work. They certainly don't want to suck the life out of a piece, as Dorothy put it. And so you would be in safe editorial hands there. Thank you again to our sponsor for this episode, The Fiddlehead, Canada's longest continuously published literary magazine based in Fredericton, New Brunswick, on Wollastogwig territory. You can subscribe to The Fiddlehead. You can read their submission guidelines, enter their contests, or sign up for The Frond at thefiddlehead.ca. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters sent every other week and filled with support for your writing practice. And do check out the How I Published With dot 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 series at rachelthompson.co slash articles. If this episode encouraged you to write, to transcend despair, to experiment with forms, I would love to hear all about it. You can tag me on social media at Rachel Thompson on Twitter or at Rachel Thompson author on Instagram. I always take December off of social media, so you can also email me at hello at rachelthompson.co. And tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or searching for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to keep writing, hopefully, writing exactly what you're meant to be writing and then publishing in the places you're meant to publish. My guest for this episode spoke to me from the traditional territory of the Nakotchtank and Acostan, Piscataue people located in what is colonially known as Washington, D.C. Myself, I am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, on lands historically and presently occupied by the Altira Bean Bedouin.